All right. All right. Good morning. Good to see you today. You look good around round tables, and I just got to brag a little bit, man. We had a great time with men last night, over 400 men, and that's a great night. Let me tell you two good reasons. One, because about a half a dozen met Jesus for the first time, made professions of faith. Amen? And number two, not quite equally important, but important, we beat the women in attendance, I'm just saying. I mean, that's a biggie. That's a biggie. It's a biggie because it's, you know, we're competitive like that, but it's also a biggie because uh, we want this church to be a church where men are men and men are living for Jesus and leading their families. That's who we are. It's who we want to become, and, and we're chasing after that. So I want to give uh, Ben Rayfield just a, a big hand, of, a clap of praise for help doing that. This makes it happen. Had a good night, and, and, and our worship team, our male segment of our worship team led the worship, just did fantastic and fantastic this morning. Let me just go ahead and tell you. You want to stay for the last song. Last song's amazing. Uh, so just, just saying, okay? And so I'm glad you're here. Now, how do we find peace now that the men beat the women? I just thought I'd say that again because I like it, okay? Because here's the deal. How, how do we bring this back together? Here, it's real simple. And next month, February, February 10th, I think it is, we've got a conference, a marriage conference. So if you're married, you're engaged, you have a significant other, we want you to come to this event, okay? Now, men, you need to sign up because if you sign up, you... That's a big star by your name. It's, it's, I'm going to tell you, I don't know if you know it, guys, Valentine's, okay? This gig is 50 bucks. It's awesome. It's, it's an opportunity to come hang out with other Christians, uh, have our guest speakers. We're going to have a great meal together. And, men, if you sign up, you win. If she signs up and you show up, you still win, but not as big, okay? So you need to show up big. We ought to have 450 people in here for that event easily. If we can do 400 men and three, uh, 400 men and 375 or whatever women, then we ought to have this place full. It's going to be a good night. I don't want you to miss it. So, all right, now we're having fun in the book of Acts, okay? We're having so much fun. We're getting to cover things like financial stewardship. We all like that, okay? We talked about alcohol consumption and gluttony. That's a popular one, Okay, we talked about faithfulness in church attendance over all things. That's a biggie. We love that one. And last week, we talked about the one we love the most, gossip and slander, because we all know people who do that. Not ourselves. We're the church at Sturkey Hills. We don't do that. But we know people that do that. Okay, so we're having fun talking about other people's sins. Now, today, I thought things would start getting easier as we read through the book of Acts, and it doesn't. Okay, so today is a brand new subject matter, a sin preference that, that we all embrace. And we're going to see it today as it gets us a little uncomfortable. Because let me tell you something about Jesus and his church. Uh, one of his desires is to keep us a little bit on edge, to keep us a little bit on the uncomfortable side. Because when we get complacent and we get comfortable, we get lazy. And when that happens, we are no longer being the church and we're no longer being the Christians, the Jesus followers that we're supposed to be. And so... To bring us up to speed, we saw last week this incredible guy shows up on the scene just a few weeks ago, and he's uh, uh, selected from among people, appointed and prayed over uh, by the apostles to be need meters, to be a deacons more or less, to do the work of a deacon, uh, helping find solutions to the growing pains in the church. And, and this guy's awesome. So we find the first appointed deacon or servant to the church. Not long after that, just a few verses, we realize this guy has now become the first evangelist. He's a traveling evangelist. He's telling people, sharing the gospel. People are getting saved. So he goes from being the first appointed deacon to the first, uh, uh, the first appointed or the first mentioned evangelist, non-apostolic evangelist. But unfortunately, things are going too great for him. So now he becomes the first recorded martyr. He's murdered for his faith. He's rocked 
to death. And, and the way they would do that is the crowd would take a man and typically and throw him down a ravine and then uh, move forward and begin to throw rocks at him until he died. And that's what it looks like. Now, it sounds terrible. Now, I don't want to be a part of that. But, but listen what happens in Stephen's life. We looked at it a little bit just, just to get us up to speed. Acts 6.15, all who were sitting in the council looked intently at Stephen and saw his face was like the face of an angel. And we talked about it. It's not this little dumpy, you know, cute guy. That's not what, that's what an angel is. They saw a messenger of God. They saw the face of a man who was intently focused on his Savior he was intently focused on what his calling was. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid even though he was dying. He was bold. He was the, had a message from God for the world. And that's what it looks like when we, when we truly understand the gospel of Jesus, how it impacts our life, and now our life is supposed to impact the world. That's what it looks like even on the darkest day. Even in the most difficult moment in our life, we can hold our head up and have the face of an angel with boldness and with confidence that we stand for for the truth of all truths, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, in Acts chapter 7, it describes why they're rocking him, okay? And what did he say that was so bad? It says in Acts seven fifty four, they became furious and ground their teeth at him. Ah, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked intently toward heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is standing. Whoa, time out. He doesn't stand. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't even know what this means, but it's beautiful. Most theologians believe that it was in this moment, here this first evangelist martyr is being stoned. Jesus stood up as if to say, that's my guy. That's my guy. Look at Stephen, right? And so he's standing there by the Father, verse 57. But they covered their ears, shouting out with a loud voice, and rushed at him with one intent. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Enter this new player named Saul. Saul is a religious zealot. Saul is, 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 uh, is accepting the fact that Stephen is being stoned for proclaiming Jesus. He is antagonistic to this church movement. He is going to be the guy that begins to persecute the church. He's the guy that ultimately will meet the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus and become the one who propels the gospel to the world and writes the biggest part of the New Testament or a big part of the New Testament. And so this is where we first see him. Now it says in verse 59, they continued to stone Stephen while he prayed. And Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. Now, it, this, is, this is like upside down because the church was doing so good. It was a juggernaut just propelling into the future. I mean, this thing is spreading like a virus and people are getting saved, meeting Jesus, being born again, being baptized and the church is being formed and man, it is going so good and then this, it just, it doesn't make sense at all. Sometimes things get so good that we forget why we are here and in America, it's easy to do. Let me tell you about your life. Are you ready? It's a good life. If you think your life is terrible, okay, Go with Clark on a foreign mission trip. You will realize how good this life is. On your worst and darkest day, it's better than most of the people in the world ever experience on a single day. And so you have a good life. But when we get a good life and when we get comfortable, we kind of get lethargic. We get a little bit lazy. And so they seem to forget, this early church, 
that what Jesus said when he said, guys, I need you to, the early church of 120 charter members, he said, I need you to hang out in Jerusalem because I'm going to heaven to prepare your place and I've got to go so the Holy Spirit can come. And then he said why the Holy Spirit's coming. He says, listen, the Holy Spirit's gonna come and when he comes upon you, he says, this is why you will be my witnesses. That's the reason today if you're born again, and the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's not just to help you make godly decisions. That's part of it. It's not just to give you the fruits of the Spirit. It's not just to bring gifts of the Spirit. He does that. But his primary reason for coming into your life is so you'll be a witness for Jesus Christ. Jesus told him, he says, you will be my witnesses. And then he said this. I'm going to tell you where. I'm going to tell you how this thing's going to go. You're going to start in Jerusalem. You're going to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He told him that, Acts 1.8. Well, it seems like the church has kind of forgotten Acts 1-8. They remember the Jerusalem part, and so they got this big holy huddle, right? Tens of thousands in Jerusalem have received salvation in Jesus' name, been baptized, and this church is just huge. But meanwhile, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world, they're still waiting to hear it, man. I mean, they haven't got the memo yet. And so something happens and it's called persecution. We're going to talk about it in a, in a minute. Uh, let me tell you something. Uh, sometimes when things are difficult in our life, and don't, don't get me wrong, I don't like difficulties in my life any more than you do, but sometimes God uses difficulties in our life to accomplish something great through it. Sometimes he uses difficulties in our life to accomplish something great through it. Let me give you an example. You go back in the Old Testament, there's an amazing guy, his name is Joseph. Joseph's a good guy. He's a, he's a brother of a big family, youngest brother. He's the, chose, he's a, he's the, the one that, has, that his father favors. And so because of that, his brothers are jealous and they sell him into slavery, okay? Now, that wasn't a good thing for him, but then he, be, he, be, he rises up and he becomes the, the right-hand man to Potiphar, who's one of uh, Pharaoh's leaders, and then Potiphar's wife thinks he's a stud, thinks he's hot, so she begins to make advances on Joseph. And Joseph doesn't respond to them, but she accuses him of sexual impropriety, has him put in jail. This is not good. Now he spends a season in jail only to become a dream interpreter. He gets out, interprets the dreams. Ultimately, he becomes the prime minister, second in command to Pharaoh himself in Egypt. Now, what started as a terrible thing, God used to accomplish something great. You see, ultimately, all of Israel, his whole family, would show up in Egypt looking for refuge from a famine. And because of the, tr of the difficulty in Joseph's life, and God would use it for something great, all of Israel found refuge from the famine. Uh, Joseph would actually say in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose so he could preserve the lives of many people as you see this day. Other translations say it like this. What, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And I want you to know that today. That sometimes the difficulties in our life that the world and the devil has uh, intended for evil, God intends it for good. I don't know what that looks like always. In my own life or in your life. But I can tell you, that's the way God works. He is a big God working out uh, terrible problems with great solutions. The greatest example of this is Jesus. Uh, Jesus shows up on the scene. He's given a mock trial. He's convicted of trumped-up charges from the mouths of gossiping, slanderous men and women. And he died on a, uh, a Roman cross, okay? An innocent man died on a Roman cross. That's terrible. What the devil intended for evil, 
God intended for good. You see, he, he did die. He rose from the dead. And because of the devil's evil intention, God's uh, good intention, the whole world has an opportunity to live forever in heaven because of that. That's, that's real. That's what it looks like. So, now we looking at Acts chapter 8, we see the church is going through a hard time. And man, it's just living in a sweet spot. And I like the sweet spot. I, I like the church in the sweet spot. You know, I just, man, it's just good. I, I like when my family's in a sweet spot. I, I like when my health is in a sweet spot. I, I just like when the country's in a sweet spot. Okay, but it's not always that way. You see, sometimes we, we don't convey the reality that when we follow Jesus, it doesn't mean everything now becomes perfect. Rich Froning was here last night, and, and Ben was interviewing him. He had a great answer. He talked about, you know, that, that it's, if you think that following Jesus means everything is easy and perfect now, you are mistaken. Often when we give our life to Jesus, the closer we walk with him, the more we experience the difficulties in life. It's a reality. But I want to encourage you that in that difficulty, God often it will work it to something more beautiful. And so the church now <clears throat> is being persecuted. Ray Stedman, who, is a, who was a pastor <clears throat> and a theologian, this is what he said. The Sanhedrin silenced Stephen, a voice that was upsetting a city. But without realizing it, they were awakening Paul, a voice that would upset an empire. You see, what looks so, so bad initially would turn out to be something so great. And as far as Stephen, I mean, here's a great man and, and, and his life is over here. But you remember what he said? He looks into heaven and he sees Jesus standing. He says, man, I, guys, I'm out of here, all right? And, and so that's how we have to live our lives. So maybe it's time that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 gets moved forward. And maybe to get it to move forward where it needs to go, it's going to come through something called persecution, through a difficult season. So the title of the message is this, Just Flesh and Bone. Just Flesh and Bones. And so the apostles in the church in Jerusalem, uh, we're in Jerusalem and it's all going good, and, and, and they're in Jerusalem. It, it's, their, it's, it's, it's common folk. Now, this is their people, right? I mean, if you're in Jerusalem and you're telling people about Jesus, you're talking to somebody who's wearing a headpiece like you're wearing. You're talking to somebody who's wearing like a robe or a tunic or whatever like you're wearing. You're talking to somebody who's wearing flip-flops or sandals like you're wearing. You're talking to somebody who kind of looks about the same color as you look. You're talking to somebody who has the same language you speak. You're talking to somebody who eats the same food you eat. You're talking to somebody who celebrates the same feast you celebrate. You're talking to somebody who smells like you smell. You're talking to somebody who's just like you, and that's easy. But the gospel was never intended to stay in Jerusalem any more than the gospel is intended to stay in your front yard. You see, the gospel is a message that is supposed to have legs and feet. It's a traveling message that was given to go to all of the world. And so the heart of a true Christian, Christian embraces that. The heart of the true Christian just begins to say, okay, that's my calling. And I want you to know, every single person in here, God didn't just save you so he could hang out with you forever. I mean, he wants to hang out with you forever. But until he starts hanging out with you in the physical realm forever in heaven, he wants to deploy you in his kingdom agenda. He wants you to be his witness. That's why he saved you. It's why he imparted his Holy Spirit into your life. And so 
what we're going to see now is the gospel needs to move to a people group that's not just like them, okay? The gospel's going to go to some people that they really don't care that much about. They're different. We don't do good with different. We like, we like people that are like us. And what do we do when things are different? Because the differences in other people's life won't really land in a place that means a win for me. And at the end of the day, we're kind of about wins for us. We kind of want to do and, 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 and think what benefits us personally the most. And God is not about that. You see, Acts 1 says that the, that the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the command of God to go doesn't build walls between people groups. It, build, it builds bridges to the whole world. That's what the, God, the gospel is, a bridge to the world. It's incredible how big this thing is. Beyond the differences, beyond what we think about the differences, the gospel is for the whole world. And, and so we've talked about some difficult subjects, which I mentioned earlier, and today we've got another difficult subject, and maybe you figured it out. The title is called Flesh and Bones. The subject is this, ready? Prejudice. Everybody say prejudice. Now just say this, I am prejudiced. Yeah, some of y'all are not convinced. You're prejudiced. Everybody's prejudiced. Now, we want to throw stones at one prejudice and elevate one. Oh, that's a bad prejudice. But my prejudice, mine's legit. No, they're all bad. God looks at humanity. He sees one race, one people. It's the human race. God looks at humanity. He doesn't see all the differences that we see like we see them. He looks into the core of it. He sees flesh and bones. He sees image bearers of himself. He sees the pinnacle and the prize of all of creation. He looks, be, he looks through the galaxies of the universe onto this planet, and he says, that's my people. Those people look like us, talking about he, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he wants us to do the same. That's it. He wants us as Jesus followers to realize that all people are just flesh and bones, and they're all different. And do, do all people groups play stupid sometimes? Yes, they do. You do, I do, we do, okay? God knows that. But beyond all of that, flesh and bones is how we should see people. And so if I gave you a pop quiz today and said, are there people groups that you just don't tend to like very much? Some of you would say, no, you would lie. Some of you would say, unfortunately, yes. I would ask you a question, are there people groups that you're uncomfortable? When you get around, some would lie and say, no. Others would say, yes, and you would tell the truth. Are there things that people groups do that just get in your crawl? They just drive you up a wall. Some would lie and say, no, not at all. Others would say, yes, and they would tell the truth. And so just imagine for a second, out of all of those differences of those people groups around the world, for a minute, imagine how it would impact God. How does God deal with all of the differences and all of the sin persuasions and proclivities and choices that mankind makes? It doesn't move him to have prejudice for one and against the other. It moves him to love more. It's incredible. The nature of God, when in all of the complexity and the differences, it moves his heart to love more. How do I know? Because Jesus would give himself up on a cross 
God's love would be demonstrated through his son dying on a cross, rising on the third day, not for a particular group of people, not for a special individual, but for the whole world who would receive it. It's amazing, and sometimes we forget that. Every single person on the planet, with every single variation or difference, moves God to love more. Now, Jesus lived like that, and do you know what our what God's desire for you and for me is in this life is to be like Jesus. That's it. You want to know what your life's supposed to look like? Does it look like Jesus much? If it doesn't look much like Jesus, you failed the test. All of us, every day when we wake up, our goal, our desire, our prayer, our hope, our ambition should be to look and act like Jesus. Look at the person next to you and just go, hmm. <laughs> Hmm, I don't know how you did on that one. So here's the deal. Jesus is our template for living. Jesus is our ambition for life. Jesus is our role model to follow. Jesus is our image to conform to. And Jesus is our Lord and our King to obey. Never forget that. If you ever wonder what God wants you to do, if you ever want want to know who Jesus wants you to be, that's it. He wants you to be like Jesus. And so... So when we think about prejudice, sometimes the problem is we, it's ill-defined. It's been interpreted. It's been massaged. It's been uh, uh, remanufactured to, to fit a particular uh, a thought process of, of, of a particular group of people. So what is prejudice by definition? Just look it up, okay? Here's what it says. It's a preconceived judgment or opinion that is not based on reason or actual personal experience. Now, some of us would say, oh, that, that means I'm not prejudiced because mine is based on reason and actual personal experience. Okay, let's keep reading. We're not done yet. He goes on, he says, it is an adverse opinion or learning formed without just grounds or before sufficient knowledge has been surveyed. You say, well, okay, I, I've surveyed the information and I've made my decision. It's not prejudice. Let's keep reading. It says that it is an irrational attitude of dislike, hostility, or unjust behavior directed against an individual or group based on their supposed characteristics or their differences. That gets most of us. That one gets most of us. We have these ideas about people that are formed based on partial information. Often often the information we've been given is information that's come from people who are committing the sin that we talked about last week, which is gossip and slander. It's not, it's not, you say, well, I saw this survey on the news. That's a good reason not to believe it. I read this on the YouTube, I mean, on the, on the internet, okay? Good reason, it might not be true. We have to be very, very careful of who we listen to and what we pay attention to. Meanwhile, if there's any confusion about it, God rises above it all and he sees flesh and bone. So regardless of what we know or we think we know, Regardless of information that may be true or only perceived as true, regardless of what we've experienced or not experienced, God rises above, looks from his heavenly vantage point and says, I see a flesh and blood bones people. I see all of mankind. I see human existence. And then he says, I want you to do the same. And so it's a big, big challenge. Now, let me talk about prejudice. A prejudice or widespread, a widespread reality. If you agree, say amen. And it's... It's a very complex issue. If you agree, say amen. Prejudice is so broad in its spectrum that it impacts people of every race, 
economic demographic, religious persuasion, political view, physical capability, or any other variation or difference that we want to add to this list. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And sometimes we choose one, say, I'm not prejudiced here. What about this area over here? We're, somehow we all have this, it's, it's, in our, it's in our flesh. It's not in our, new, it's not in our new creature being. It's not in our new be like Jesus existence. It's our old nature. So I want to be clear about prejudice today. You ready? We're not going to solve any of the prejudices. Not one. We're not going to solve one of them. That's not our goal. We're not even going to attempt to. Why? Because people much brighter than me have given their whole lives dedicated to battling prejudices in mankind, and they've been doing it literally for thousands of years, and has it worked? Look around us. No, it doesn't work because we're attacking the problem from the wrong vantage point. We're attacking it on the surface. The pro- you cannot legislate evil people to act right. We see that. It, that is an abysmal failure. So we're not going to try to do that. What we are going to do, though, is look at the Bible and read a chapter in Acts called Acts chapter 8 and see how a person navigates through the prejudice, navigates through the pre-existing viewpoint of other people groups and rise above and act like Jesus in the middle of it, motivated by the heart of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God with an interest of impacting the world at its core and not based on all of the surface level statistics that we hear about on the news and read about on the internet. Acts chapter 8, listen what happens. Verse 1, now on that day, what day? Stephen just got rocked that day. A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Huh, you see where they're going? You see where they left? You remember Acts 1.8? It's happening. Verse 2, and some devout men buried Stephen, and they made loud lamentation over him. He's a good dude. Verse 3, but Saul was trying to destroy the church, the same Saul that held the coats while they stoned Stephen. Now he begins this persecution to try to destroy the church. Entering one house after another, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. The church just went from a happy, holy huddle to a persecuted church that's on the run. Things were going so stinking good. What happened? What happened? Acts 1.8 wasn't happening. So persecution began. God would use the evil intentions of a man named Saul to propel and project the gospel from its little holy huddle in Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria Why? Because in Acts 1-8, he said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to start in Jerusalem. We're going to Judea and Samaria and then the rest of the world. God is incredible. He tells us the plan. He says, this is what we're going to do, and and we're going to make it happen. I will do it through you, or I will do it around you, but this is what's going to happen. And so this persecution began. In the context of Stephen getting stoned and Saul persecuting the church, it's in this kind of context when things are just just broken, just, I mean, disturbed. 
It's in moments like this when, when a person or a group of people just feel bombarded, man. It's just weighing down on them. It's in this moment that there's a God up there and he's not worried and he's not threatened and he's not frustrated and he's not surprised. He's just a big old God doing what he does and that is being a big old God. Just what he does. He's just God. He's, he hasn't moved or changed He's not afraid. He's looking, yeah, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I kind of expected because I know things. I'm God. I saw this coming, and I'm going to use it for my good and my glory. And so that's exactly what he does. And so God always has this plan. He always has a plan. And, and if you don't know what his plan is, it's not rocket science plan. It's an incredible plan. Are you ready? His plan is to save the world from sin and death. <laughs> he said he was going to do it. We had two good chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, and then the wheels fell off the train. Adam and Eve sinned, death came, everything just. But in the middle of that, God said, I'm going to fix this. It was part of his plan. You see, God's glory is not that he created two robots in the Garden of Eden that would do exactly what he said to do. God's plan is that he created a man and a woman who he knew had the freedom to choose. And he knew that the angel cast from heaven, who was Lucifer, who became Satan, would deceive Eve and trick Adam into taking this sinful, forbidden fruit. Now, where's the glory in that? Where's the good in that? Why didn't God just execute, eliminate, and annihilate Satan and create perfect Garden of Eden life for the rest of us for all of time? Why? Because that's not the greatest glory. The greatest glory is to cre create mankind with the ability to choose, knowing that we will all choose to do wrong. So he can come from heaven and die on a cross to rescue us from our decision. Isn't that beautiful? That's what he did. That's what he did. He let us mess everything up so he could choose to love us anyway and die on a cross in our place. Now that's some glory stuff. All right, that's, old, that's God's stuff. You can't do that. You can't even write a story like that. But that's what God does, and that's what Jesus did. Now, verse 4. Now, those who had been forced to scatter, they went around proclaiming the good news of the word. So that's what they were doing before. Now the world just flipped upside down. They're on the run, running from Saul. Good friend's been stoned to death. I mean, this would be a good moment to... to, to develop the idea of what most of us live in in American culture, to develop the idea of covert Christianity. You know, I'm in stealth mode. I'm going to heaven, got my ticket punched, all right? But, but I'm not going to talk about it. And I'm not going to live radically different from the rest of the world. I'm going to live as a, a covert Christian, okay? And if the opportunity somehow arises in the future for me to share my faith, I will. But it's, I'm not going to be in the active mode. I'm not going to come out of the closet, so to speak, as a Christian. Uh, I'm, I'm going to check my box. I'm going to attend church. I'm going to have some level of religion. I'm going to read my Bible some. I'm going to pray some. But when it's, when it's all said and done, I, I don't want any heat. I, I don't want to lose any friends. I don't want anything to jeopardize anything good in my life by being outspoken about my faith. And along comes these people who are, who are being persecuted and driven from their homes and put in prison. And you know what they're doing? Sharing the gospel. And sometimes in our life, we just, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I've just been praying. I wish God would tell me what he wants me to do. Let me, get, let me just answer that question for you. It'll always be true. Until God tells you something new to do, 
you just keep doing what he told you last. If he hasn't told you the next thing, you keep doing the last thing. He'll tell you when he wants you to change. But right now, you do whatever he told you to do last time. You keep doing it, doing it well. He's preparing you for when he decides to tell you what he wants you to do next. So prejudice is the word. Flesh and bones are the people that God sees from his vantage point. So let's talk about prejudice. Let's see the first example of prejudice in the spread of the gospel. It's, it's found in verse 5. I will call it religious and cultural prejudice among a people that are flesh and bones. It says in verse 5, Philip, new guy, new guy, where did this guy come from? Wait a minute. This is not Stephen. It's not Saul. Who's this guy? This guy showed up just a few uh, chapters ago during growing pains. He was one of the, quote, deacons that were selected and, and appointed and prayed over by the apostles. He was right there with Stephen. They got saved. They knew Jesus. They're, 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 they're serving the Lord. Stephen's gone. Philip's like, well, he was the, he was the starter. I'm the, I'm the B team, but he's gone. They rocked him. Should I run? No, I guess I'll go in the game. I guess it's my turn. And so he steps in. Here's where he steps in. Now, listen to what he does. It's so cool. Philip went down to the main city of Samaria and began proclaiming, Christ, the Christ to them. The crowds were paying attention with one mind to what Philip said. And they heard and saw the miraculous signs that he was performing. For the unclean spirits crying with loud shrieks were coming out of many who were possessed and many paralyzed and lame people were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Sure there was. Jesus is showing up. When Jesus shows up in a life or a group of people's lives, there's great joy in that. There's just something about no longer having hell as your eternal destiny, change to heaven as your eternal destiny. There's just something about that that just should kind of joy you up. And sometimes we live in a world where we let the world th tell us that the circumstances of our life are what determines our joy. Wrong. The circumstances of your life are external influences that can impact your happiness. But your joy does not come from the external circumstances of the world. Your joy comes from the deposit of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit. The joy comes when you realize you're no longer hell-bound. You've been forgiven from every sin you've ever committed and every sin you could potentially commit in the future. Something about that brings joy, and it brought it to these people. Now, this was a great time for the church to be at a crisis of belief, at a, at a crossroads of decisions where, okay, let me get this straight. I followed Jesus. They killed Jesus. He rose from the dead. He told us to do this thing. We got the Holy Spirit. The church is exploding. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And now Stephen's dead. And the church is being persecuted and drug away into prison. Now's the crossroads where I get to decide. I didn't get the memo on that. I didn't really sign up for this. Or do we move forward? What Philip do? Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. And so he goes to Samaria. Uh, Philip didn't get any special training. He, he didn't go to seminary. He didn't listen to a podcast. He didn't read a book. Okay? He just went and told about Jesus. He just went and shared the gospel. Sometimes people pause their life in the kingdom agenda because they don't feel like they're ready yet. Listen, you don't wait to start when you get to where you're going. 
You start where you are and it prepares and propels you to the place that God wants you to be. So I want to challenge and encourage some of you. You get off the bubble. Get in the game. God has this plan, this agenda of saving the world. He wants to include you. Maybe you were on the C team when you were on the high school football team, you know. Maybe you never got to play an ounce of sport. Maybe you were not first chair in the band. As a matter of fact, you were sitting on a bucket, okay. Maybe your life has been second fiddle. Let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't look at you as C team second fiddle. Jesus looks at you as a superstar in the kingdom. I'm telling you. And he has a people, a person who's waiting on you to step in to his kingdom agenda for the world through your life. And you say, well, I just don't, I'm, I'm, not, very, I'm not very outspoken. I, you don't have to preach unless he calls you to, and then you do, okay? I, 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 I love being out in the lobby before, between, and after church. I love seeing people just holding doors and, working the connection center and signing people in and holding doors down here and, and people coming in. I'm working in the children, they tell me. I'm working in the children. Or they come out, you know, and they're sweating, their hair's messed up. I just worked in the children, you know. I just love it because they're in the game. I love to see our worship team up here serving. I love our audiovisual people up there just serving. Listen to me. It's not for a select group. God has a place for you. And he, use, he uses the church as an avenue, as a tool to help you get going, to push through the inertia and to get the wheels turning into his kingdom agenda. And so Philip went down to Samaria. Now, if you read this like I have a hundred times, and you say, so Philip went down to Samaria, preached, a bunch of people got saved. Cool, that's cool. It's bigger than that. I've, I've never paid any attention to this. We're talking about prejudice and flesh and bones what does that have to do with this I'll tell you what it has to do with it you ready Philip went down to Samaria he left the people who were just like him and he went to the people that were not just not like him he went to the people that Philip and all of the other Jews detested hated talked about were prejudiced against, wouldn't even walk through Samaria. Samaria is in the, is in the uh, boundaries of Israel, okay? They're Jewish people partly. The Jews wouldn't even go through Samaria. They hated them so much. And if they went through there, they were taking their life in their own hands. And Samaria hated them right back. They were prejudiced against the Jews. Well, what is this all about? This is about a cultural, religious difference that's been going on for hundreds of years. It's been going on since Assyria took Israel into captivity. And in that captivity, some of the Jews married some of the Assyrians. And so now, true Jews hate them. And the Assyrian Jews hated the true Jews. Samaria were people who, lived, who had embraced the pagan religion of Assyria. And so they were, uh, they were religiously just foul. And so they hated each other for years. They would have conversations and, and 
regularly in their conversations. They would emphasize, don't forget, we still hate that group. Chuck Swindoll, who I read after, is an amazing guy. He says that the Jews saw Samaritans as people who were religious, who were religiously compromised, idolatrous half-breeds, ethnically polluted, and morally debased. And the Samaritans didn't help. It's like everything that the Jews stood for, the Samaritans said, well, we don't want to be like that. So they stood for the opposite. And so it wasn't just a casual dislike. It wasn't just an uncomfortable disagreement. It was a deep-rooted hatred and prejudice against this other people. And what's the scripture say? Philip went down to Samaria. So cool. He didn't care. Why? What had happened in his life? Philip had had a heart transplant. Same season that Stephen did. Jesus came in and says, man, I'm different. I'm God. I'm going to tell you the answer to the question. I'm going to tell you the solution to the problem. It looks like me. Jesus said, so let me in your life and you will become no longer the problem but a solution to the problem. And that's what we're supposed to be today. We're supposed to be like Philip. When the whole world is screaming prejudice and hatred and, and all this division, the Christian community is say, I don't really have time all that. I'm just telling you, man, God loves us all. I love you too, okay? And if you don't want that, you don't like that, that's your choice. But I can tell you the solution to the problem, and it's Jesus. And so he had a heart transplant. Jesus had saved him. The Holy Spirit lived in him. God had told him to go, and that's, that's what he was going to do. Now, this is, this is 2,000 years ago, 6,000 miles away. That's what we're reading about in Acts 8, right? So let's, look, let's bring it 2,000 years forward in our front yard. When we turn on the news, we see all of the unrest still in the Middle East. Palestinians against Israel. Israel against Palestinians. Arabs and Jews, all of that. It's on the news every day, okay? It hadn't, it hadn't changed. Why? Because the people that are fighting and have prejudice against you, they, they don't have Jesus. Jesus is the bridge, not the wall. And, and so they're building walls. They built walls for thousands of years. And so when we read about it, we see that when we see Jews today, we would accuse them of the same things they accused the Samaritans of. We would, we would accuse them of a compromised religion because they don't believe in Jesus who was their Messiah coming from their bloodline, and they missed him. And so we would, we would think the same thing about them. Do we, do we hate Israel? No, we do not. We love Israel. We support Israel. At the same time, on the other side of the board, you have the Palestinians, you have Hamas, or whatever name you want to call them for the day. They don't have Jesus. Do we hate them? No, we don't hate them. Listen to me. We love them too. Why? Because they're all flesh and bone. We can love them from 6,000 miles away in the love of God through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, let's, get a little, let's dial it in. I got to thinking about prejudice because some people immediately think, I'm not prejudiced. I've worked through all that. You haven't. Okay? I haven't. I don't want to be prejudiced, but it rises up sometimes. So let me give you a few areas that might touch home. The North has prejudice against the South because they think we talk slow or we have a funny accent. 
Apparently, they haven't listened to themselves on a recorder. The South has a prejudice against the North because sometimes they seem rude and they drive their boat on the wrong side of the lake. That's personal. And if you go north to visit, they don't have sweet tea or biscuits. There's a good reason to be prejudiced right there. The woke joke crowd is easy to be prejudiced against because they want to deconstruct everything that's ever been built. And they want to defund everything that's put in place to somewhat protect us. And the woke crowd shows prejudice against all of America because everything we stand for is broken even though it's still the greatest country in the world. The liberals are prejudiced about the conservatives because conservatives are not progressive enough. The conservatives are prejudiced about the liberals because they have no standard of truth and they've walked away from the traditions of the past. The wealthy are prejudiced against the government because of overtaxation to support free stuff for those who don't want to work. The poor are prejudiced against the rich because the rich have everything and the poor want more of it. The Republicans are prejudiced against the Democrats because everything they say or do, and Hunter Biden too. The Democrats are prejudiced against the Republicans for every conservative fiber of their existence and every ounce of DNA remotely connected to the name Donald Trump. The lawyer and the accountant are prejudiced against the guy standing on the corner with a piece of cardboard every, month, every morning begging for money when the business on the corner has a sign that says now hiring. The guy with the cardboard hates the lawyer and the accountant who drives by sipping a grande from Starbucks driving his brand new SUV. The volunteer fan is prejudiced, a prejudice against this week's opponent and Florida and Alabama every day. And they are glad that Nick Saban retired. The, the greatest response I had all day was in reference to Nick Saban. You see what I deal with? Oh, I'm going to change careers. The Panthers of Powell are prejudiced against the Red Devils of Halls, and Halls hates them right back because Halls has it, which means Powell does not. The Clinton Dragons are prejudiced against the Mavericks of Anderson County because the Mavericks have fireworks displays after every football game. Clinton doesn't have them. The Mavericks are prejudiced against Clinton Dragons because the superintendent shows favoritism because he's from Clinton. The Baptist talks about the Pentecostal and the Pentecostal talks about the Methodist and the Methodist talks about the non-denominational and the non-denominational talks about the Baptist and the circle of life is complete because everybody then talks about the Catholics. And we all just hold on to this stuff. We dial in a talk radio show that escalates it and amps it up. We read about it. We have these conversations. We, we take what's been rooted deep in our soul and we hang on to it. And we never grow up. And meanwhile, the God of the universe looks from heaven. And he sees all of his diversity in creation. And he sees flesh and bones. And he says, I would die on a cross for every variation of my creation. And that's the separation. And church, we have to get back to being like Jesus. So how do we do that? 
we act like Philip, who just went down to Samaria. See, Philip just pushed through all of the years, all of the conversations, all of the prejudices of the past, and he looked at the world and he says, we don't really have time for all of that. Philip's heart was changed He saw the flesh and blood and bones and water of mankind, the diversity of the tapestry of God's creation. And rather than than stand against it and have prejudice, he, he embraced and he celebrated the glory of God and he wanted to communicate his love. Philip did not come. Philip did not show up in Acts chapter eight with a political debate. Philip did not show up with a with a theological forum about religious differences. Philip did not come for racial reconciliation. Philip did not come to recount historical failures, foolishnesses, and stupidity. Philip did not come to tear down walls of division. Philip came bringing a soul awakening, a born-again salvation. Uh, He came to teach of a spiritual resurrection. Philip came bringing the one thing that rocked his world, and his name is Jesus. Philip came knowing that nothing will fix or repair or fill the brokenness of this world except one name, and that name is Jesus Christ. You see... I'm never going to change somebody's mind about prejudice. I'm not going to change your mind. I'm not going to change your mind much about anything. I can't fix you. You can't fix me. We can't fix the problems of the world. But we hold within us as children of God the answer to the question, the solution to the equation, the one thing that changes everything. We have that. And so moving forward, when we hear this garbage just spewed out everywhere, this, this, you can listen to it if you want to. You can dial it in. But the answer is, yeah, it's broken, man. It's broken. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he did. And let me tell you how I'm going to live my life. Let me tell you about a guy named Philip. He pushed through all the crap of that stuff. Can I say that word? I won't say it anymore. I snuck that in. He pushed through it, man. He pushed through it in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's who we're supposed to be today. Now, listen what happens. Verse 12. When, the, when they believed Philip, as he was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they began to be baptized, both men and women. I just love that. I just love when somebody shares the gospel and somebody receives it and they're born again and then they get baptized. It's often, we, we, people all the time, with people right now planning to be baptized, just, just good stuff. You know that God's moving, the Holy Spirit's there when, when, you, when you read and hear and see that. It says, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Now the apostles, you'll remember or may not remember from a previous verse, it said everybody except the apostles were scattered. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. But now, because the people group that ain't nobody liked, this people group are getting saved. And how much did they not like these people? Do you remember Jesus taught a story about the good what? Samaritan. 
And he's emphasizing the fact that when you all hate these people, they're flesh and bones just like you. And sometimes the people that you hate the most are the, are the ones that are going to do the, 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 the most good in a situation. And so now the apostles, they go down to check it out. It says now in verse 15, these two, Peter and John, went down and prayed for them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet come upon them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, let me clear something up right here. Does that mean somebody needs to pray for me, lay hands on me for me to receive the Holy Spirit? Is, is the Holy Spirit the second thing that comes later? This is not the norm. This is early church. This is, this is this chapter of revolutionary change when God's love and his family is extended to the world. It's so significant, just like the early church was, that Peter and John needed to come down and authenticate this transmission of the gospel to the world, to the, to the Gentiles, to everybody that's not Jewish. And so the apostles came imparting the Holy Spirit on them. Now, verse 25, and we're done. So after Peter and John had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. And wouldn't you know it, they were proclaiming the good news to many Samaritan villages as they went. So today, part one of Flesh and Bones. If the Holy Spirit showed up, and he did, because we brought him with us. But if he spoke to your heart just so articulately, it seemed audible. Would he say, you're doing great in battling the prejudice that this world has? Or would he say, you've established some patterns in your life that display prejudice. And there's no room for me and prejudice in your life. Most of us, if we were candid with the Holy Spirit, we would say, we've established patterns that are not what God wants in my life. So how do we, what do we do with that? We simply repent. Repent. Everybody say repent. Brother Scott mentioned it last night, real clear picture of repentance. Repentance is this is my life. This is my decisions. These are what I'm doing, where I'm going. Holy Spirit convicts, and he says, you need to repent of that. It means to change our mind, to change our direction, and start walking another way. That's repentance. And this message has convicted my heart. I, I, I don't feel like I have a lot of prejudice. I love all people. I really do. But then there's sometimes that I get frustrated with somebody or a group, and that's when it rises up. So I battle it too. But I think this is the day, man, that, that God wants us to begin a, re a revival and a renewal of our heart and let go of some of those old prejudices. Man, some of them are deep-rooted. They've been around a long time. We've chattered about them an awful lot. It's going to be hard to let go. But it takes the power of the Holy Spirit and the heart of Jesus Christ, and it'll happen because the Holy Spirit will shove it out because he doesn't want it in your life. Bow your heads and close your eyes. <clears throat> Maybe you're here this morning, and prejudice is not the number one thing in your life. Maybe today the number one need in your life is to begin a relationship with the true and living God. Maybe the number one need in your life is to allow the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, to come into your life and eradicate and forgive every sin you've ever committed, to wash you as white as snow 
to make you a brand new creature, old things passed away, to adopt you into his forever family and set you on a new journey. You see, Jesus steps into this broken world of prejudice and sin. He steps into it and he stomps his big old nail-scarred foot in your world. He extends his loving nail-scarred hand and he says, you can keep walking where you are or you can take my hand and I'll lead you on a brand new journey that'll last for all of eternity. And you can begin that today. How do you do that? You simply say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I've messed stuff up. I know it, and everybody around me knows it. And I trust right now, God, you know it too. And so, God, I repent of my sin. I'm changing my mind today. I'm agreeing with you. I'm walking in a different direction, walking away from the world. I'm walking towards you, God. I want Jesus to come into my life to save me from my sinful condition. I want your Holy Spirit to be given into my soul so I can be empowered to live for you from this day through all of eternity. And he will hear your prayer. He will wash you clean. He will save your soul. And he will call you his forever child like that in a flash. For the rest of us, might just be a good opportunity to make our way through these chairs to this altar, to repent, to pray, and say, God, help me be more like Jesus starting in this very moment. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for truth that I've never seen before. I thank you, God, for sharing for the areas where I've messed it up. I ask that you just erase it from our memory, that your Holy Spirit would only have people remember uh, what you want them to remember. And God, we pray that this would be a moment when we would each evaluate and listen to what the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart, that we could leave this place changed and different and better and more like Jesus in the future. The world's dark, the world's broken, the world needs Jesus. And we are the ones who are supposed to take the message of Jesus into that world. We give you praise. We give you glory. We love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.